As this is a, a family Sunday, I want to just open up this sermon by addressing uh, the littlest ones among us who Jesus was very keen to address. And so, um, as I'm talking to them, you know, you guys can listen in, but this is really for them, okay? So, uh, this morning, guys, can I get your eyes right up here? All right, eyes right here and get your ears too. I'm going to talk to you guys about roads. You guys know what roads are? Yeah? Do any of you know what road you live on? You can say it out if you know. Go ahead. Anybody know? Winchester Way. Winchester Way. Hey, I live on that road. That's cool, Sawyer. Anybody else know what road you live on? Surely, Maddie. Come on. What road? Tobin Circle? Yeah, I knew that. How did I know that? Michael, do you know what road you live on? Queen Creek Road? This is good. All right. Have you ever thought about what a road is? Or what a road does? You ever thought about it? Lucas, what do you think a road does? What does a road do? Did you all hear that? That was really good. He said it lets cars travel from one place to another. Amen. It could be bicycles. It could be uh, buses. It could be trucks. But you're exactly right. So Lucas has just absolutely nailed this, okay? What a road does, what it's designed to do, is to take you from one place to another, okay? There are all sorts of roads in the world. And some of the roads that we travel, they can be so long or maybe so difficult or maybe even so beautiful that we get changed along the way. We're going we're gonna to talk more about that later, uh, later today, but um, there are a couple of really famous roads in the world. Um, you, might, you might recognize some of these, but I just want to show you a few of these. The first one that comes to my mind is called Abbey Road. You're probably too young to know, but I assume some of you know. Here's one I bet you guys know, Route 66. Do you know that road? Maybe some of you have tr traveled on that road. My kids and I did that last summer. Um, what about the Autobahn in Germany? This is a road that's very famous because there's no speed limits. You can go as fast as you want. What? Yeah. Cool, huh? Um, here's another road. It's also close to home, Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, this is in Los Angeles. Well, two of my favorite roads to drive on are this one, the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina, especially at that time of year in the fall. I just, I just love driving on that road. Another road that you might not have heard of before is called the Merritt Parkway. It's in Connecticut. Anybody know what I'm talking about? A few of you? I love the Merritt Parkway. There's all sorts of bridges that, that extend over this little uh, highway, and they're all designed by different architects, and they're all beautiful. Well, um, roads get famous for different reasons, okay? Most of the time, the roads that I mentioned to you, the reason they're famous, do you want to know the reason they're famous? Is because of the cool things that you see. I mean, there's so many cool things on Route 66. Um, all sorts of cool things at Hollywood Boulevard or the Merritt Parkway or the Blue Ridge Parkway. But you know, there are also roads that are famous not because of what sites there are around, but because of what happened on those roads. Okay, and I'm actually going to talk about one of those this morning. Before I do that, did you know that the Bible has some famous roads? Yeah, the Bible has some famous roads. Can you think of any? This would, this would be amazing if you came up with any of these. All right, so here's one that sticks out to me. It's called the King's Highway. You know that, Sawyer? Man. All right, I'll have to test you later, okay? 
So the King's Highway is a very ancient road that travels uh, across the Middle East, but it runs right through Israel, too. It was a trading route. There's another road I think of. It's called the Road to Jericho. And you guessed it. It's a road to Jericho. And this is the road on which the Good Samaritan shows up and takes care of the guy who was beaten up by robbers. There's another road I think of called the Road to Calvary. Calvary is the place that Jesus was crucified. And so the road to Calvary is the road that Jesus walked and carried his cross. There's another road called the Road to Emmaus. And there's actually an Anglican church plant in Maricopa that's called Emmaus after this road. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples after he was resurrected. And that's where they recognized him in the breaking of bread. But did you know that, I don't know if you guys listened to this reading this morning, the reading from Acts. Did you hear what road I might be talking about today? It's called the Damascus Road. The Damascus Road. And let me tell you this about the Damascus Road. It's not famous because of the sights that you would see if you were traveling on that road. All right, Lucas, if you were in a car riding from Jerusalem to Damascus, the reason that road is famous isn't because of what you'd see along the way. It's actually famous because of what happened on that road, okay? But unless you think I'm just going to talk about one road today, you're wrong. I'm going to talk about three roads. There are actually three roads that get mentioned in the story that we're going to talk about from the book of Acts this morning. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you about these three roads, and I'm going to tell you about where each of these three roads lead, okay? And at the end of my sermon, I'm going to... um, talk to you guys. You're going to be sitting with your parents in just a moment, but I'm going to talk to you all, and I'm going to say, what are the three roads? All right, and so you're going to have a little test. You got to help me, okay, and answer and tell me what those three roads are, all right? So you children can be seated, okay? Go ahead and return to where you were seated. Thanks for coming up here and for paying attention. Parents, uh, you might have found it already, but there are some activities for your kids in the narthex, some coloring sheets, Um, and maybe even some other activities for them. You will have to help them pay attention to the three roads, all right? So let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at um, verses 1 to 18 of that chapter. Uh, This is really important for you to open up to there uh, today because I'm not going to read that passage from start to finish. So you're going to want it right in front of you. Uh, What I will do is read pieces of it as we go along today. But um, this is a famous passage all right, there are, um, there are people who are not Christians, don't identify as Christians, and don't attend church who will know about this passage. They will know of Saul's conversion, and they will know what we mean by the idiom, a Damascus Road experience. Not many, but some will know. So it's famous. Now, um, Damascus Road, that's certainly the, the first road I'm going to be talking about today, Right? Damascus Road, that's number one. Lock that one away. All of you should get this answer, okay? Our passage in Acts chapter 9, it opens up with a man named Saul, who we first met in Acts chapter 7. We met Saul at the stoning of Stephen, the deacon. Saul was the guy who was holding the cloaks for all those guys who were getting hot and sweaty, throwing rocks at Stephen, all right? Now, what we know about Saul is that he's a religious fanatic, You've never met anyone like Saul. He's a Pharisee. He eats and drinks and sleeps the law. As a young man, 
Saul is studying Torah, the Mosaic law, for one purpose. It is to purify the nation of Israel, to purify Judaism, to get rid of all those who don't follow the law perfectly. Because if you, if you do that in Paul's mind, the Messiah will come back. Once you're pure, he's coming. And so, the execution of Stephen was something that pleased Saul, right? It pleased Saul because to him, Stephen's death meant Judaism was just that much cleaner. We need to get rid of this cancer of Jesus of Nazareth and those who would follow him. And thus... Right after Stephen's stoning, in chapter 8, verse 4, it says that Saul started to ravage the church, the believers, by by hunting them down in the city of Jerusalem and by committing them to prison. Now, we do not see Saul for the rest of chapter 8, but once we get to chapter 9, what we find is that while we were off with Simon the magician in Samaria and the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza, Saul was busy, and Saul had still not grown tired of these raids. Chapter 1 verse, I'm sorry, chapter 9 verse 1 says that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In fact, far from being tired of his new Gestapo lifestyle, Saul actually goes to a high priest in the temple and he asks for permission. He says, give me a warrant to go to Damascus in another country and hunt down the Jesus followers there. Well, evidently, uh, the high priest was more than happy to oblige because the next thing we see, Saul, Saul's on his way. Right? Saul's he's heading to Damascus. And, and this is no small journey. All right? It would have taken Saul five to six days to get there. It's 135 miles, that journey. So Saul's committed. He is sold out. He's using his free time for this. Now, what verse 3 tells us is that when Saul was on the final day of his travel, so he's almost there, all right, you can get the the suspense of this. It says he sees the the city of Damascus in front of him, but all of a sudden, he doesn't make it to the city, his world gets turned upside down, upside down. It says a, a light from heaven shone around Saul. And evidently, it was so bright and so shocking that it, that it knocked him to the ground. It was overwhelming. What we'll see soon enough is that Saul actually gets blinded by the light. He's not revved up like a deuce, but he's blinded nonetheless. Now, blindness is scary, all right? I've not experienced that, but if I, if I could, I would tell you it's very scary. But that's not the, uh, even the most frightening part of this experience. Uh, that's what happens next. Okay, because verse 4 tells us a voice comes from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I want to put this into perspective because the narrative in, in, in the scriptures is usually really quick. Let's slow it down. Let's slow it down. There's a blinding light that brings you to your knees. Then you hear a, a voice from heaven. It's audible. And you don't know who the voice is. But clearly the voice knows you. The person behind the voice is very clearly your superior. He's over you. And this person is not pleased with you. Thus, 
Saul asked the only question that there is to ask. Who are you, Lord? Who am I dealing with? Although it's very clear to me that you are the Lord over me. Now, if Saul hadn't uh, messed his pants by now, he might want to check them because to that question comes the answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Turns out the, the man that Saul had seen as a disease on the Jewish people, who he had seen as a blaspheming criminal who had led multitudes away from the true faith, that man is actually the Lord Capital L, Lord. And therefore, everything that Saul has done to eradicate Jesus' followers from the face of the earth has actually been an attempt to do the same to the one true God. What would it be like to discover that everything you've done, everything you stood for in your life, in a moment was actually the opposite of what you thought? To think you were sold out for the truth, and then to find out you were sold out for a lie. Saul's completely undone. He's undone. And yet, even in that moment of doing, undoing, Jesus the gracious, Jesus the gracious does not eradicate Saul from the face of the earth as Saul wished to do of Jesus. Instead, Jesus gives him instructions. He says in verse 6, rise, get up, go and enter the city, and there you will be told what you are to do. Well, Saul really doesn't have other options here, right? He, he has to obey. He's being compelled to obey. Now, it's at this point we find out that Saul is, is not traveling alone. He's traveling with some other men. And whether or not these are, are, are people who are along uh, with Saul for this mission of finding Jesus followers, or if they're just traveling companions to keep each other safe, we don't know. But regardless, what we know is they don't hear the voice. They're mystified. All they see is this zealous and mighty Pharisee Saul on the ground in a blind stupor. And as Saul starts to stand up, he himself realizes that he's blind. And so the only way that he's going to get into the city and do what Jesus said is if he's led by the hand. He's led by the hand, right? And that's what happens. Saul is brought by these men to a house, and there he waits further instruction. And verse 9 tells us that it was for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Three days is a long time, guys. Three days. What do you think went through Saul's mind in these three days? Three days to be alone with your thoughts. No visual stimulus. Do you think that, that Saul might have been overwhelmed with guilt and regret in these days? Do you think he might have wondered about how many Christians he wrongly killed or jailed? Do you think he would have wondered if he ever had a chance to make amends or if this was the end. That's despair. I think Saul's brain looked a good bit like Jonah's brain as he was in the fish for three days. Well, we can't say for certain what was going on in Saul's mind, 
What we can say, excuse me, is what God was doing in Saul's life. God was doing something inside Saul over the course of these three days. What is it? Well, first of all, he's helping Saul to see how wrong he's been. Right? This whole ordeal is humiliating for Saul. Saul, the proud, the respected Pharisee, God's brought him down to size. That has to happen. But second of all, God's preparing Saul to show him how good and right he is. Jesus is. You see, what's going on in these three days is symbolic. We might even say that it's like a sacrament. It is sacramental in that God is doing something physically to Saul, which is a symbol of what's happening spiritually within Saul. God has made Saul blind in order to show him he is spiritually blind. And God's not going to leave him there, right? He's not going to stay blind because Jesus is going to open up his eyes physically as a sign of spiritually. Listen to what Bede, the 8th century English monk and theologian, writes about this moment. The venerable Bede says, Since Saul had not believed that the Lord Jesus had conquered death by rising from the dead on the third day, Saul was now taught through his own experience of the replacement of three days of darkness for himself and then the return of the light. Hmm. Well, the Damascus Road is where Saul gets blinded, right? It's going to take a different road for Saul to get his sight again, and that's the second road. It's called Straight Street. Straight Street. All right, kids? Straight Street. Lock it away. As we'll find in verse 11, Straight Street is the road on which Saul is staying in Damascus. He's led there to a house. And what's even crazier, I want you to go ahead and throw that up there, Matthew. Straight Street is still around in Damascus today. It's the same street. You can visit Straight Street in Damascus if you go. Take a picture uh, if you visit there, and I'll replace that one with yours, all right? Now, um, before we get to Straight Street, we've got to go across town, across Damascus, to where we are introduced in verse 10 to a certain follower of Jesus named Ananias, okay? Now, if you're thinking that <clears throat> that name sounds familiar, you're right. We have met an Ananias before. We met him in chapter 5. He, he was married to a woman named Sapphira, and they both came to an untimely death. And so uh, this Ananias in Damascus is a different follower of Jesus, and I'm going to refer to him as a live Ananias, okay? So uh, a live Ananias lives in Damascus, and he is one of the Jews there who has accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Damascus to Jews in those synagogues there in that city. And what that means is Ananias would have been one of the very Jesus followers whom Saul was going to hunt down had Jesus not stopped him on the road. And so I want you to imagine today if you were in Kabul, Afghanistan, and you were an Afghan citizen who'd been assisting the Americans, what do you think you would be doing as the Taliban goes door to door now? You probably have two options. Take your chances and get to the airport and see if you can get out. Or secondly, you can lay low. You can hide and hope that no one comes to your door. So it's not a surprise that we find Ananias laying low at his home. 
And yet, that's all about to change because in verse 10, Jesus shows up again, this time to him. And Ananias gets a vision in which Jesus tells him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Go out and put yourself in harm's way, Ananias. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, we should recognize that that Jesus gives Ananias more explanation than he needed to at this moment. He could have just said, rise and go to the street called Straight. Just do what I tell you, Ananias. But he actually tells Ananias that Saul's expecting him. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Words of comfort. And yet, Ananias still has to be sure that, that Jesus is talking about the actual Saul that Ananias thinks he's talking about. And so he says in verses 13 to 14, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he here in Damascus has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Me, Lord. In other words, Jesus, are you talking about the same Saul of Tarsus who hates you and murders your people and wants me dead? That one? Of course, we know the answer is yes. We know the answer is yes. Jesus replies in verses 15 to 16, Go, get up, Ananias, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, we saw how God brought Saul low on the road to Damascus. I mean, literally, he's prostrate on the ground. But here on Stray Street, we get a picture from Jesus about how Saul is going to be rebuilt. He's going to be rebuilt. Jesus has chosen him to take the gospel to his people Israel, even to kings, which hasn't been done yet, but even more so to the Gentiles, which surely hasn't been done yet. Now, we're going to get to why God would want to choose Saul for a mission like this later on in our series in the book of Acts. But for today, let us just see that with this word from Jesus, alive Ananias obeys, and he stays alive. He does better than the first Ananias. And when he enters the house on Straight Street, he finds Saul there, just as Jesus has said. And without any hesitation, he goes in. What would that be like? You were hiding from the Taliban, but you decided to go to the Taliban's house? Without hesitation... He walks in the house, he lays his hand on Saul, and these are the words that come out of Ananias' mouth. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul. Not Saul the Pharisee. Not Saul the murderer. Not Saul the idolater, not Saul the enemy, brother Saul. Originally, Saul was headed to Damascus in order to lay his hands on as many Christians he could find and to call them blasphemers, right? Here, what happens? Here we have a Christian coming to Saul in order to lay his hands on him and call him a brother. It's more irony from Luke, I should think. 
And as Ananias prayed over Saul, verse 18 says that immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Do do we understand the, the transformations, plural, happening in this passage? Can we see them? Of course, Saul, Saul's being transformed from from blindness to sight, right? From from falsity to truth, from pride to humility, from hating Jesus to adoring Jesus, from being on a mission to make Christ suffer to being on a mission to suffer for Christ. That's a transformation. These scales that, that, that fall from Saul's eyes to the ground They are like the pupa that is left behind by the butterfly. Like the skin that is shed, molted by the snake. There's something new in the place of the old. And yet, Saul's not the only thing being changed in this passage. It's not just about him. You see, Ananias gets changed. You see, why didn't didn't Jesus just heal Saul? Speak the word, Jesus. You don't need Ananias. Why did he bother sending Ananias? And the answer is, do you think that Jesus might want to grow Ananias' faith when he witnessed Saul's metamorphosis? Do you think that Ananias ever dreamed that he would lay hands on and pray for the single greatest enemy of the church? God's working on Ananias too. In this passage, it's all about transformation. And that's exactly how the passage ends. Verse 18, B says, Saul rose and was baptized. Saul rose and was baptized. See, baptism is the sacrament of new birth. It's the sacrament of transformation. The old Saul is gone and the new Saul has come. 2 Corinthians 5. The old Saul was buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Saul too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6 verse 4. See, Saul would write those words later, but they apply to him now. Well, so far, I've mentioned two roads, the Damascus Road and Straight Street, uh, but these two roads would be meaningless If it weren't for the third road, what is it? In order to find out, we got to go back and we got to read verses one to two again. It says this But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Did you catch it? It's the way. The way. The way is the third road. Now this passage um, is the very first time that the followers of Jesus are identified as belonging to the way. And the Greek word here for way is hodos, which means literally the road, the highway. It's the word from which we get the word exodus, exhodos, ex meaning out, hodos being road, so the way out is the exodus. Now, why would these followers of Jesus call their faith the way? We get a clue in John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I am the way. 
I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so what we find in this passage is this third road. It's none other than Jesus himself, right? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the road. Jesus is the path that leads to God. And if this passage is all about transformation, and if this passage and the transformation that happens here in this passage is all dependent upon Jesus the way, then what we know about the way of Jesus, the Jesus road, is that it's a road of transformation. It's a road of change. The only reason I'm talking to you about a road in Syria today, two of them, is because it was Jesus the road who brought about Saul's transformation on those two roads. Now, this passage it has a number of different implications for us. We would have to acknowledge that, that uh, Saul's conversion is incredibly important, right? When we think about what God used Saul to do to build his kingdom. Saul will go out and preach to the Gentiles. He's going to plant countless churches. He's going to write a third of the New Testament. And yet, I think there is something that's even more foundational for us to take away from this passage today. And here it is. There is no one Jesus can't change. There's no one Jesus can't change. Saul was the very, 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 very last person Ananias thought would repent and believe in Jesus and be changed. And Jesus would have us dispense with that kind of thinking. God can change anyone. There's no one that God can't change. If that's true, that there's no one Jesus can't change, then guess what? Jesus can change whoever it is that we think he can't or won't. No one is beyond redemption. So who's the last person that you think Jesus can't change? Who's the last person you think would never leave their idol worship behind and turn to the one true God? Maybe it's Kim Jong-un. Maybe it's Richard Dawkins. Maybe it's the leader of the Taliban. Maybe it's a Mormon prophet. It doesn't matter. This is how Ananias felt about Saul, who is literally killing his brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no one that Jesus can't change. No one. And what that means is that Jesus is calling us to love people, everyone, as if he is working right now in them to bring about transformation. And we shouldn't stop it. We should bless it. You know what else? It means that even you are not beyond redemption, as awful as you are. Don't take it personally. You're not beyond redemption. You think you've messed up so many times that you could never be redeemed? Poppycock. You think your sinful habits are so deeply ingrained that Jesus can't transform you? That's not true. 
You're not believing the gospel if you believe that. And so, just like Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, been trying very hard not to say Paul instead of Saul, we have to be brought like Saul was to the place where we realize we've opposed Jesus with everything that we are. That's what sin is. It's outright opposition to God. And that we are utterly blind apart from him. We've got to be brought down to size. And yet, Jesus builds us up because in his grace, he offers us everything. That's the gospel. There's no one that Jesus can't change. And as I close, I want to talk to the kids again, all right? So when I want to test you, did you catch these three roads? All right, what's the first road? Damascus. The road to Damascus, thank you. What's the second road? Straight Street, I heard the S, thank you. And what's the third road? The way. The way. Jesus, the way. So um, at the end of this week, um, I actually wrote a little song on my guitar about these three roads, all right? And what I'm going to do is share that uh, song with you later in the week by video, okay? I hope you kids will get a chance to watch that with your parents. Uh, for now, I want to sing the chorus with you uh, just to give you a, a sneak peek, okay? Here it is. Jesus, you are the way, the road to redemption, the journey of grace. And there's no one that you can't change. You teach us to follow and walk in your ways. Sneak peek. You'll get more later this week, all right? So I want to close. None of that. I want to close with a collect straight out of the Book of Common Prayer, a collect we know as for the conversion of St. Paul. Let's pray. Oh God, by the preaching of your apostle Paul, you have caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world. Grant, we pray, that having his wonderful conversion in our remembrance, we may show ourselves thankful to you by following his holy teaching. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.